And it's Revelation 1, and just verses 4 and 5. John. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. If you were here last week, you might remember one of the pictures, the images that we used, um, was thinking about the Christian life being a bit like climbing a flight of stairs. And at times it feels really hard because everyone else is coming down and, and we're the only ones going up. And we feel like we're the only ones. We're bumping into people the whole time, we're colliding, it's all a bit awkward, there are frustrations and tucks and stairs. And, and maybe at times it feels like there are more people coming down than there used to be. And maybe at times it feels a bit like the stairs are a bit steeper than they were last year. And the problem at that point is we can get so caught up in just plodding up stair after stair after stair that we forget what we're heading up for in the first place. We, we forget whether it's actually even worth it. But just to stretch the picture a bit further, I'd like you to imagine that your, your phone goes off on your way upstairs. You're feeling stressed, you're feeling hassled, you're, you're not sure whether you want to keep going up the stairs. And your phone goes off. Who do you want it to be? What kind of phone call helps you at that point to keep going? Who are you hoping for? Maybe, maybe it's a good Christian friend from the past. Somebody who, who knows you, who gets past the, yeah, I'm fine, thanks, smiles and the sort of glib answers that we give. Knows you and your struggles and your doubts and what's really going on and perhaps has been there for you in the past and you know a phone call with them or a conversation with them will be an encouragement. Maybe it's a parent, if you had the privilege of growing up in a Christian house, or, or an old youth leader or someone from university or somebody you respect and admire or maybe someone from the present day, maybe in your home group. Or, or who are you hoping it's going to be on the phone? You look down to see who's calling and you work out whether you're going to pick up or not or whether you leave it to go to voicemail. And you look down at your phone, and it blows your mind who is calling you, who's speaking to you at that point. Because have a look at verse 4. And you see who the letter, the book of Revelation is from. Do you see grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come? And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Do you see who's calling you? It's God the Trinity. Isn't that incredible? As John starts this little message for us, this, this communication, remember last week, from our God who speaks, from our God who is warning us what's coming, he begins with no doubt as to the importance of the caller. He, this is worth picking up. You look at your phone, you think, do I go to a voicemail? No, I'm going to answer this one. I need to speak. I need to hear what they have to say. 
And I take it John at the beginning wants our hearts to be lifted and warmed and to help us see why we should keep going. To remember the one whom we love and serve. To remember the one who has loved and served us. And so what we'll do over the next 25 minutes or so is just work our way through these first two two verses and examine each member of the Trinity in turn and maybe try and understand why he's describing them in this way and we'll do a little bit of how this description works its way out in Revelation as well. Often the way in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, that the first chapter or so, the first few verses are kind of an overview of what's to come. They're the the abstract, the summary of, of all that's coming up and We'll try and do a little bit of that and try and work out why he uses these descriptions of each member of the Trinity in the way that he does to give us a bit of a heads up for the chapters after chapter 1. Um, just a couple of things from last week though. If you, if you weren't here then you can get it online but a couple of things to say. Often we find reading Revelation difficult. We acknowledge that to each other last week. And one of the reasons I think that is is because we don't know our Bibles that well. And Revelation is something of the culmination, the the consummation of all that's come before. And if we haven't read the previous 65 books, and it's a bit like jumping in at the end of a novel and trying to work out who the characters are and what's going on and why is this language used and what does this metaphor mean? And and we've just picked it up and started at the last page. And even more so because admittedly it is apocalyptic and with different pictures and metaphors spliced together, stretching us, making us slow down and work out what's going on and think you've got brides like cities which sounds a bit offensive or you've got lions like lambs and you're thinking well, what's, what's going on there? Okay, so, so Revelation is the end of all that's come before and it helps us to know what's come before to understand what's really going on. It's not quite as confusing as we think it is if we know particularly some of the prophetic literature from earlier in the Bible. So that's the first thing. The second thing to say It's an unusual book, but I think it functions like any other book in the Bible. And that is, we need to work out what it meant for the people then. It was for a specific people in a specific place with specific issues, specific things going on, about a particular situation, but then there are general things that we can learn that he speaks to us through it, as the Lord always does. His word is living and active and it's for a particular time and a particular people but but he speaks in and through it to us as his people. His word is timeless. Through them in their context to us in ours. So with those two things in mind let's jump in and see who Revelation is from. And you'll forgive my alliteration tonight. But it's initially from, you see verse 4, have a look down, the, the eternal Father. Grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. Because when we're really going through it, and when it's really hard to be a Christian, isn't the temptation to feel that, that either God is not there, or that he has forgotten you, or that he is out of control. Either he's, he's not willing, he, he doesn't care about us, or he's not able to help. He's limited in some way. His hands are tied, things have spun out of control and he's not quite sure what to do. Or, or maybe even in the darker moments, he's not even there. 
And so do you feel the encouragement from the start of verse 4? He is the God who is, and who was, and who is to come, which, which means whatever the situation you find yourself in, whatever situation brothers and sisters around the world today find themselves in, he's got it covered. He's referring to himself, I think, in Exodus 3 type language. Do you remember the encounter that Moses has at the burning bush with the Lord, with Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God? Let me read you a little bit of that. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And it's a funny name when you first get it there in Exodus. It's it's a funny name, but by saying I am who I am, or as our Bibles have it, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the name he uses right through the Bible, he's saying I am the God who exists. I am real, as opposed to some of the false gods whom Pharaoh is worshipping. And you'll see them as the plagues come. And he says, I am self-sufficient, I am unchanging, I am reliable. I wonder if some of the self-sufficiency is seen as you've got this bush that doesn't burn up. He is self-existent, self-referential. But it, but it can also be translated as, I will be who I will be. So it's as if he's saying, back in Exodus, do you know what God is like? Well, see what he will do. That is his character. That is he, what he will do. Stay tuned. Keep listening. I will be what I will be. Which is then interesting in Revelation when you get that similar kind of language as God reveals himself to his people. In Exodus, it was a people who were oppressed. Oppressed and looking for a rescuer. Well, so as he reveals himself in Revelation, it's to a people, as far as we can tell, who are oppressed and needing help. And by using the language, is, was, is to come, he's saying, I am present with you and I don't change and you can trust me and I've got it covered and just watch what I will do. But it's more explicit than that. It's as if he's saying, I know all things, the future is in my hands. And when he says, I'm the one who's to come, so he says, I am the one who will come and I will judge and I will rescue and you can trust me. You might feel like prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. You might feel like I'm not able to help or I'm not there, but I am. He says to oppressed Christians around the world today who are, who are reading this today, this situation will not go on forever. I will come and sort things out and I've got it covered. I don't know how your colleagues or friends or neighbours or family or people who aren't Christians would, would think if they were listening into that. The kind of challenges that I hear are the way you've just made God up. You, you've, just, you've just constructed the kind of God that you would like to believe in. Someone to, to believe in in the dark times. Someone to pretend he's in control. And I think it's a good challenge. It's a good challenge to us. When you read, I am the God who is and who was and who is to come, fundamentally it does come down to the question of do we create God 
Or has he created us? Have a listen to Philip Pullman um, writing in his Dark Materials trilogy. You might have read them. They're a children's book, um, slightly scarily read by vast, vast numbers of primary school children around our land. I think in one sense they're very good books, but in another they're very dark with a nasty agenda. Have a listen. This is um, Balfamos, if you've read it, it's the third of the three, a rebel angel speaking about God. He says this, he says, The authority, God, the creator, the Lord, Yahweh, El, Adonai, the king, the father, the almighty, those were all names he gave himself. He was never the creator, he was an angel like ourselves, the first angel, true, the most powerful, true, but he was formed of dust as we are. You see what Pullman's trying to do? Sowing seeds of doubt into young children. That God has been created. God has taken a title for himself, if he even exists, which, of course, Pullman would say he didn't. But John would not agree. He would say God has always been there. And we can trust him. He was and is and he will come. Flick over to uh, Revelation 4 and you'll see how this idea of was, is and will come is developed. We get this glimpse of of God on his throne. I'm reading from about verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. You see, he is the one who lives forever and ever and so he is the one who is worthy of our worship. And the danger is we take our eyes off him and we do so at our peril. We we simply look at the steps we're trying to climb up and how many more people are coming down the steps and and how steep the stairs feel at the moment. And We're paralysed by numbers. And if more and more people are coming down then maybe, maybe it's wrong to be in the minority. But we forget the one who was and is and who is to come. We forget his power and his authority that he is with us. We forget he's got it covered. And so if you're here this evening feeling like God's not there or or that your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, then let me urge you this week to spend time in verse 4 to reflect upon, to meditate upon the one who was and is and is to come. Because he is the eternal Father whom we can trust. Secondly, and as verse 4 continues, the last little phrase there, he is the Emmanuel Spirit, I've called it. Again, forgive the alliteration, but... You see the last little phrase in verse 4? From the seven spirits before his throne. You see, I guess a very real temptation is, and it's actually a temptation we find at the heart of scriptures, that we believe, perhaps that God is there, but he's far off. He feels distant. He, He might be there somewhere. He might be powerful. 
He might even be good, but he is lofty, aloof, distant. He's distant from me in my life, in my situation. Is he, is he here with me at work? How do I know he's here with me in this situation, in this um, scenario? And we're, if we're tempted to think that, then this next little bit is for us. The, the answer is no. No, he is with you. He is with you. He, he is powerful. He is the eternal father, but by his spirit he is with you. And I guess one question we've got as you read verse 4 is, well, why does he describe himself like that? What do you mean the seven spirits before his throne, or the little footnote at the bottom, the sevenfold spirit? It's a funny little phrase, isn't it? It's one of those times that we perhaps need to know our Bibles better, or we need to read back, or we need to read forward. I, I think it's this. I think as, as the chapter goes on, we'll read of seven lampstands and and each one of these lampstands represents a church, a local church body. Remember seven, we said last week, is in, numbers are important in Revelation. So when you get seven, we're thinking completeness, perfection, fullness. And so with the seven spirits coming from his throne, and we've got seven lampstands about to come, I think it's God saying that he is with his Churches. He is with his local churches. All of his churches, because it's seven. He is with his people. All of his people. The complete people, the fullness of God's people, because it's seven. God's people are not left as orphans. If you like, we have the fullness of God's Spirit with the complete list of God's people. I think the language does look back as well. You get Old Testament pictures and metaphors. If you're taking notes, then Zechariah 4 and maybe Isaiah 11 kind of spliced together as well. And then it looks ahead too to the rest of Revelation where you see these themes develop. We're not going to go into them in great detail, but again, if you want to write down Revelation 4 verse 5 and 5 verse 6, they're interesting. But each time, I think the thing that's happening, the picture that's being painted is of a God who is with his people, enabling them to press on, enabling them to persevere, enabling them to trust him, to be empowered to witness for him. God the Holy Spirit is the one who lives with his people in each believer, in each church, with you. So again, if I can ask, where this coming week, where would you be most scared to perhaps be outspoken for Christ. As you seek to live for him, I don't know, maybe at work, maybe with family, the environments where we're tempted just to keep a bit quiet and to sort of tone things down and put the volume down a bit. Maybe at the school gates, maybe certain friends who, who are actively hostile, who, who like to embarrass you, to see you not quite sure what to say or how to answer a question. Maybe it's just that there seem to be more and more people coming down the stairs and the stairs seem steeper and steeper. Well, in those times, remember the end of verse 4. Remember that God's Holy Spirit is his direct link between the eternal Father in the throne room and little old you and little old me in our scenarios and situations. 
God is with you through his Spirit. This week as you head to work or as you head to lectures or wherever you head, or or that situation that you're dreading, that conversation that you think you ought to have or that invite that you think you ought to give but you're just not quite sure whether you can, he's with you through his Spirit. So it's a letter from the Eternal Father, the Emmanuel Spirit, but also, thirdly, the Exemplary Son. And by exemplary, I mean, I think John paints him in this way because he is our example to follow. I think he's, he's launching a theme here that he will develop as Revelation goes on. So have a look down at verse 5 with me. So we've seen the Father, we've seen the Spirit, but also the Son from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Interesting description he gives. It's who Jesus is, of what he did, of his incredible power and authority that he has now, because he is seated at the right hand of the Father, because he has defeated death. The authority he has, even over the kings of the earth now, even over those who seem to be free to persecute his people now, the description here reminds us that he is actually sovereign. One writer puts it like this. Jesus persevered as a faithful witness to the Father in the face of persecution, even unto death, which he conquered, and then he became the cosmic ruler. And I think John describes Jesus in this way to both encourage them, but also to urge them to press on and to keep going in his pattern. Look at Jesus, look at what he's done for you, look at how much he cares, look at his love for you, but also look at him because these are the footsteps you are to follow. Christ is to be the model for us. The model of faithfully persevering and witnessing, even into death, and then being raised again and seated at the right hand of the Father. And we will be those who rule with him, Revelation will say, we'll see that in a bit. Again, it might feel a long way off for us and for our our relatively comfortable Christian lives. But for brothers and sisters who, who may well meet him face to face today, this is an encouragement for them. If Christ has conquered death, if he really has, if he really rose again, then death really is no longer to be feared his people if Christ has gone before us and he's he's ruling now then we can trust him even with death so listen to what he'll say to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2 he said don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown Or again, the church in Laodicea, chapter 3. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Or even at the end of the book, in chapter 20, verse 4 to 6, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast 
or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Do you see what he's saying? If you feel like jacking it in, if you feel like waving the white flag, Christian, if you feel like turning around and going down the steps because it would just be easier and you will stick out less than everybody else's, well, John says, follow the example of Christ. Even to the point of death perhaps. Because if we do, then we'll reign with him. We will be like him. So we're going up the steps and the phone rings and we look down and see who's calling us. And we think, this is incredible. Yes, I will listen. Yes, I will take this call now. Yes, encourage me. It's the eternal Father who was and is and is to come saying, remember who I am, remember I'm in control, remember I've got it covered. It's the Emmanuel Spirit, the fullness of God with the completeness of his people with us in the midst of it. It's the exemplary Son who who set the pattern, who faithfully endured, who, who was raised now and who rules and reigns. He's the one to be our example and our pattern, but it's more than that. Yes, it's an incredible phone call to take. But do you see how verse 5 ends? It's incredible. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Because I guess it's all well and good remembering who our God is. And, and those truths should warm our hearts and encourage us. And of course, for the Christian looking down the barrel of the gun perhaps literally, remembering God is so important, but even better still is to remember how this God feels about you and what he has done for you as his people. The Eternal Father, the Emmanuel Spirit, the Exemplary Son, loves his people. And so if you see from the end of verse 5, this, this new status we have, He loves us and so has freed us from our sins by his blood. So the devil had us where he wanted us. All day long he could rightly accuse us because of our sin. He was perfectly right for him to do that. But because Jesus loves us and died in our place and has freed us, has has redeemed us from our sin, well, so Satan is defeated. And the victory is won. He can't accuse us anymore because we've been forgiven. Satan's power over sin and death is is utterly destroyed. We are free. You are free. And he loves you. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that just the kind of truth to help you in the morning? Isn't that just the kind of truth to, to keep us going up the stairs. Even when it feels like there are more and more people coming down and it feels like the stairs are steeper and steeper. And we live not to earn his love, not to pay him back for his love, but simply because because he loves us. 
and has freed us from our sin. John writes to the seven churches in the province of Asia and via them to Magdalen wrote, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. 